have not met before. There's communion on this room. That's not my name. Um, if we have not met before, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Halifax Christian Church. And so I'd love to meet you after the service if I have the opportunity. Now today we're in chapter 21 of the story. And this is the final chapter before uh, we take a break over the summer. So the final chapter of the Old Testament in the story. Now if you're anything like me, um, you put something somewhere and then you forget it. And so what I want to encourage you to do with your copy of the story is, is find a safe place, maybe a bookshelf or something, and just put it there so that when we pick back up in the New Testament in September, you just know where it is. Or even easier, men, if you're married, just give it to your wife. Uh, because if your wife's like my wife, she never forgets anything. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Oh, say that. Anyways. Whenever I talk with my parents um, who live on Prince Edward Island, one of the first things I ask, or maybe they come into town for a visit, one of the very first things I ask them is, how are things at home? It's one of those things we ask. And while I, I live here in Halifax, and Halifax is home, in a real sense, PEI is still home. And so um, I, I happily reside in Halifax. I have no intentions of moving. I love it here. Um, Prince Edward Island is still home because my roots are there. That's where I've, I've grown up. And for many of you, I imagine it's the same. While you reside in Halifax, somewhere else is home. Maybe it's a different city. Maybe it's a different province. Maybe it's a, a different country. And so uh, whenever I talk to my parents, I say, how are things at home? Or, or what's, what's changed on PEI since I was last there, since I last talked to you, to you guys? Um, usually the response is nothing. Not much has changed on PEI, but to be honest, that's one of the things I love about PEI. It's one of those things we look for in home, isn't it? That it stays constant, that, that there's not much change because it anchors us in a way. Now today in chapter 21 of the story, we're introduced to a man named Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is a, is a Jewish man who's living in the capital city of Persia called Susa. And, and he lives there, um, and, and he's, he works there, and he's grown up there pretty much his entire life because he went into exile, uh, taken away by the Persians, and he grew up in Persia. Now, a few years before, some of the Jewish people uh, were able to return from exile to the promised land. And so his brother Hananiah is one of those guys. And so Hananiah comes back into Persia, back into town from Susa, and Nehemiah asks that question that many of us ask when family comes into town, or we talk to them on the phone. How are things at home? Nehemiah wants to know, how, how is the city of Jerusalem doing? How are those, those Jews who returned from exile with Ezra about 15 years ago, how are, how are they doing? And because Nehemiah, he is, he is a Jewish man. And, and yes, he's grown up in a different country, he lives in a different country, but he knows the promises of God. He knows scripture, and he knows that there's a special relationship with God for, for the Jewish people, that they are the people of God. There's something special about the city of Jerusalem, and there's something special about that land. And so, while he lives in Persia, in a very real way, Jerusalem is still home, regardless of where he lives. Now apparently things aren't going that well. Hananiah says to Nehemiah, 
It's, just, it's a disaster. The survivors of the exile who are in the Persian province of Jerusalem have been wronged and are hated. The wall of Jerusalem has been reduced to piles of rock and its gates are consumed by flame. And so Jerusalem has gone from something that was glorious to something that is now more like the ghetto. It has gone from something that was magnificent to something that is, is maligned. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart. Because the city of God, the people of God are suffering. The city is in shambles. And, and this means for the people that the Hebrews, they're, they're not safe. They're kind of a laughing stock of the surrounding nations and provinces. There's little security and freedom for the Jewish people with the capital city's walls down. They're not really free to be the people of God like they were before. They're, they're easily influenced and dominated by outside forces. And so Nehemiah is, is concerned for the people's well-being, but he's also concerned for the glory of God, because God's reputation can be damaged when the people of God aren't able to be the people of God, when they're not doing what they should be doing. And so Nehemiah, he spends days fasting and praying about this. And after, after these days, he brings his conclusions, he brings his thoughts, his concerns to God in a prayer. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 7 through 11. We have acted extremely wickedly toward you. We have rejected your commands, disregarding the regulations and judgments you gave to your servant Moses to show us how to live. I ask that you remember your words to your servant Moses, even when we did not. You told him, if you are unfaithful to me and choose another, then I will send you away and you will live separate from me. You will live as aliens in strange lands. But, if you have a change of heart and return to me, and walk according to my commands, then no matter how far you have gone, even to the, the places beyond the horizon, I will gather you and bring you to the place of my choosing, where my very name dwells. They are yours, God. They are your servants. They are your people whom you liberated from the exile by your initiative and power. O oh Lord, hear your servant praying to you and pay attention, and not just to my prayers, but also to the prayers of these very Jews whose greatest joy is to live in fear and awe of you. I am asking for success today, God. Please make sure this man is compassionate to me, your servant. And so, Nehemiah is pouring out his, his thoughts and his conclusions to God after days of prayer and fasting. And here's what he's concluded. God, this is, this is kind of on us. Because you gave us the warning that if we sinned, if we, if we trespassed on the covenant, if we went back on our word, what we agreed to do with you, this agreement we made, yes, we would go into exile, and we did that. We brought that upon ourselves. But God, you are also good. And you promised that if we repent, if we turn from our sin, that you would bring us back, regardless of where we have gone. And you did that. We saw that you do that through, through Ezra. But now, Father, your people, they are suffering. Your city is not in good state. And so, Father, as I go before this man, give me success. Let him show me favor. And so the question you might have after that prayer is, is who is this man that Nehemiah is talking about? Who is he so concerned about going before to make this request? Well, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11 gives us the hint. In that day, I was cupbearer to the king. And so Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. 
Now, as a cupbearer, you were very close to the king. You got to sit at his table. You got to eat his food. You got to drink his wine. You, you knew him well. You actually had his ear. And it's, it's supposed to be an honored position, but I don't think it's as great as it sounds. Because while you did get to sit at his table and drink his wine and eat his food, what would happen is um, the royal chef or whoever it is, they'd bring up the food and they'd place it before you, even before it went before the king. And they'd say, eat, drink. And so you, you'd start in and everybody's watching you. And you take the first drink and you're like, this wine's pretty good, this and you start eating the food, and you're like, yeah, this is, this is pretty good, you should have some. And so if you, you eat this food, and you drink the wine, and you don't have an adverse reaction, or you don't drop dead, the king's like, you know what, I probably will eat. Because it means the food's probably not poison, or at least it's not, like, bad or something like that. So he would partake. But if you were eating the food, and you were drinking the wine, and you're going, man, I don't feel so good. Or if you drop dead, the king is going to not partake because somebody might be trying to assassinate him. Somebody might be trying to harm him. And so essentially, you are the royal guinea pig. They want to see if the food's going to hurt you before the king tries it himself. And so this is, this is supposed to be a position of honor. I have a hard time believing you'd give it to somebody you really like. I mean, I wouldn't want to be attached to the person I give this position to. And I wouldn't be thrilled to find out I'm next in line for this promotion to the king's cupbearer. But this is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah might be in the right place. I believe Nehemiah is in the right place for what God has planned for him. Now, while being the cupbearer is an important position, it is not, it's, it, it is a secular position. And what I mean by that is it's a non-spiritual job. Nehemiah, unlike a lot of the guys we study in Scripture, he, he doesn't have an official title that is a religious office like prophet or priest. He's just a regular guy. Also in the book of Nehemiah, nowhere do we see God speaking directly like with words to Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 12, we see Nehemiah says, God has laid this on my heart. God has laid this plan, this concern on my heart. He's, he's pressing it upon me. And so, Nehemiah is essentially a normal guy. He works a nine-to-five job. You might say he's blue-collar, but he loves God. And he loves God so much that he's willing to go before the king with this request to help the Jewish people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the reason he's so concerned about it is because this is the king who actually halted the restoration efforts on Jerusalem. When they were doing the restoration work under, under Ezra years before, Artaxerxes said, no, it's time to stop. And so now Nehemiah goes before this king and he's saying, I want to help these people. I want to rebuild these walls. And he's nervous about it because he could be taking his life into his own hands. But God hears Nehemiah's prayer and he gives him favor. And the king willingly sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem. But not only that, he gives him the supplies and the resources that he might need to do it. God has put Nehemiah in just the right place. Now, Nehemiah feels that God has, has pressed this upon him. Nehemiah knows the promises of God in Scripture. He, he feels God's calling him to do this, that the walls of Jerusalem must be built back up, that the people need to be helped. And that he feels really passionate about this. But what is interesting is Nehemiah, he doesn't stop and say, this is an important job. 
Who's going to do it? Nehemiah doesn't stop and say, who should do it? Should it be a prophet or a priest, somebody with, with a title? No. Nehemiah feels the need. His heart goes out to them, and he says, I will do it. And he picks up his tools, and he heads off to work. Now, every once in a while, somebody will come to one of the pastors or myself, and they'll say, I've got this great idea for a ministry opportunity. And they're really excited about it. They're really pumped up about it. And it could be a very good opportunity. And they come, and they say, we should get involved in this. And they say, I hear about this opportunity. Um, we, we could teach the gospel through, through Braille to blind left-handed introverts in the deepest parts of the South American rainforest. I just made that up. That's not a real mission that anybody's come up and proposed. It is just so you know. Um, but, but they're excited about it, and they want the whole church to get behind it and everybody to do it. And they're like, you know what? A pastor and elder should spearhead these efforts. And while I'm not opposed to teaching the gospel through Braille to blind left-handed introverts in the deepest parts of the South American rainforest, it's something that I'm just not passionate about as you are for some reason. And the reason is God has probably put that onto your heart. And what I'm saying is that if God is pressing something upon you, if God is saying, you need to get involved in this, something must be done about this, you are probably the best person to be doing that. Because God has, has put this in you, that you, you feel the need to do something about it. Your heart is there. And what I'm trying to say is that not absolutely everybody's heart is in the same place. God puts our hearts in different places to address different needs. But Nehemiah, he sent to Jerusalem to be the governor of the province. And while being governor of the province sounds like it's a great thing, it's not. Not, not Jerusalem. Because it's kind of like saying you get to be the cupbearer. It's a, it's a great position, or it's got a, a great title, but there's a lot of risk. It's not necessarily a desirable position. Because Jerusalem is run down. It, the, the, the outlook for Jerusalem looks bleak. And so Nehemiah, he gets to Jerusalem, and he walks around the walls, and he sees all the walls are down. He sees the gates are burned. He observes the people, and morale is low. And he sees all of this, and he formulates his plan. And he comes to the people, and he delivers his own, I have a dream speech. And he's, he's honest with them. He says, where we are right now is not good. Look at our walls are crumbled, our, our gates are burned, our enemies could come in at any time and just take whatever they want. We don't really have much protection. And guys, I can tell you're, you're tired and, and there's not much hope. The, the future looks bleak for us. And if we stay here, you know what? It's not going to be good for us. There's not much hope. But we build the walls. We put those gates back up. I believe with hard work and by the grace of God, we can return Jerusalem to the place that it once was. It could be that magnificent city of God that it once was under King David and King Solomon. He, he casts a vision for them. And the people, they're inspired, and they begin to build. And Nehemiah, he's a strategic leader because he tells the people, um, the, the section of wall in front of where you live, the section of, of wall in front of where you work, that's your responsibility. And he has those families build up that section of wall where they're going to have a vested interest.
this. They're going to work harder. They're going to work more efficiently because nobody wants the enemy to break through on their doorstep. And so he, he's strategic about this. But have you ever resolved to do something? And almost immediately after you resolve to do it or committed to do something, a test or a challenge comes along to see whether or not you're going to stick to it. Maybe you're like, you know what, I'm going to diet. And then you realize, oh man, I've got like three barbecues next week. Or the holidays are just around the corner. And it's like, are you going to stick to this? Or maybe you're like, you know what, I'm going to exercise every day. I'm going to walk to work every day. But then Monday it rains, Tuesday it rains, Wednesday it rains, Thursday, 50% chance of shower, so I better drive anyways. Friday, it rains. It's like, it's a challenge to whether or not you're going to stick to it. Or maybe you're like, I'm going to spend more time reading, more time on my studies, uh, less time in front of the television. And, and just as you're going to flick it off, you're like, oh no, the James Bond marathon's on all weekend. Or for women, maybe it's like a Nicholas Sparks movie marathon. I don't know what, what you guys are really excited about. But this happens to God's people. When somebody becomes a Christian, they, they decide they're going to commit their life to Christ. Or they say, I'm going to do something for God. But then almost immediately after they do, a test or a challenge comes along. See whether or not they're going to stick to it. It, it challenges their commitment. And Nehemiah, he faces this. The Jewish people who are with Nehemiah in the city, city of Jerusalem, immediately after they declare, we're going to rebuild the walls, a challenge comes. And so what happens is there is external conflict. The surrounding nations, the surrounding provinces don't like the idea that Jerusalem's going to build its walls back up. And so they come in and they say, you can't do that. Well, we won't let you. Because it poses a threat to their dominance over Jerusalem and their political position. And so they, they mock them. They threaten them. They bribe their prophets. They try and lure Nehemiah out of the city so that they can attack him. But Nehemiah knows God's desire for the city of Jerusalem. And so he won't allow this to happen. He won't be deceived. He won't be discouraged. And they continue building the walls. But when the walls are halfway up and the enemy realizes, you know what, our opportunity for stopping this restoration process is growing slim, they up their threats. They say, if you do not stop rebuilding these walls, we are going to come and attack you. We will kill some of you if you do not stop. How do you respond to this? Well, Nehemiah says this. Our response to this threat was twofold. We pray to our true God, and we set up a watch day and night to look out for them. It's simple. He says, I'm going to bring the problem to God. I'll let God handle it. But I'm also going to be practical about this. We're going to keep working, because God wants this work to be done. And when the enemy increases the threat, the, the threats become more intense, Nehemiah takes half the man, and he says, here's a spear, here's a shield, here's a bow, here's some armor. You stand guard and watch out for the enemy. And to the other half of the men, he says, you guys keep working, but here's a sword. Strap it to your side. If the enemy comes, you fight with us. And so, so they're building and waiting for an attack. But there's also internal problems. There's internal conflict. Because many of the rich in Jerusalem are being unfair to the poor of Jerusalem. And they're lending them money and supplies at high rates of interest, which was actually forbidden by God. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, God says this, You may not charge interest to a fellow Israelite who borrows money or food or anything else you could charge interest for. God said, lend it to them, but don't have interest. Be generous with them. 
And so the poor come to, to Nehemiah and say, we're being taxed or we're being uh, charged heavy interest. And Nehemiah's like, that's not good. And so he goes to the people and he says this, At great expense we have been laboring to buy back our brothers and sisters, fellow Jews who have been enslaved to pagan nations. Now we discover that you are the ones selling them away in the first place. We are buying them from you. There was nothing they could say. Their silence confirmed their guilt. And so Nehemiah, he brings the people back to the word of God. He halts this practice of usury or high interest. And he commands generosity instead. And what's beautiful about Nehemiah is he practices what he preaches. Being the, the governor of Jerusalem, he could have taxed heavily. He could have made extreme demands of the people, but he never did. He never asked one thing from them. Instead, he, he was generous with his own funds. He, he, he was generous to the people. He gave to them. He was concerned about their well-being. He was concerned about the city's well-being. Now, despite these challenges, what is amazing is that Scripture records in 52 days the walls were completely rebuilt and the gates were in place. This is amazing. In, in Halifax, it takes four months to build a house from top to bottom. That's with power tools and equipment. Manual labor, under threat of attack in the hot sun, and these walls are 12 meters high, 2.5 meters thick, and 4 kilometers around in length. And Nehemiah and the Israelites, they do all of this in under two months. Now this is so remarkable that Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 16 says this, When our enemies heard the work was complete, and so the surrounding nations saw our wall, their confidence crumbled. Only one possible conclusion could be drawn. It was not just our efforts that had done this thing. God had been working alongside us. And so after Nehemiah leads the people in the physical restoration work in the city, he leads them in spiritual restoration. He has Ezra read the law to the people, and the people are convicted. They repent, and then Ezra and Nehemiah lead the people in renewing their covenant with God. What's, what's amazing about the story of Nehemiah is that one guy, one guy who was passionate for God, he was able to take something that God had put on his heart, and he brought it to the people. He went in faith, he worked hard, and God blessed that effort. God did something amazing through it. And Nehemiah went from being the cupbearer to the king, to a spiritual leader amongst his people. And what is amazing, what is more amazing, is that Nehemiah doesn't let this get to his head. In a world that says, make a name for yourself, Nehemiah could have. He had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in under two months. He had led the people back to God. He, he was the king's cupbearer. He became the governor of a province. He could, have, he could have made a name for himself. He could have bragged about all his accomplishments. But we get the idea that Nehemiah is just like, I'm going to make God's name great. He did not care about man's approval. Nehemiah simply wanted the approval of God. And after he's restored security to the, the city of Jerusalem, after he's rebuilt the walls, ensuring the nation's presence in the land, his final words to God are, Remember me with favor, my God. And this only, the only motive Nehemiah has throughout his entire ministry is to 
God alone. He models this call in Scripture on our lives that whatever you do, whatever your hands find to do, do it all for the glory of God. Nehemiah's work secured the Jewish people's land, position in that land. It, it, it helped secure, uh, make them safe, to be the people of God in that area. 400 years later, a man named Jesus of Nazareth entered that city. He died a criminal's death, even though he was an innocent man. But three days later, he rose from the grave. He proved that God had conquered sin and death. And now we have hope that we will get to go to the new Jerusalem, as Revelation 21 describes heaven, where, where nothing impure, where nothing evil, where nothing sinful can get over the walls of Jerusalem. Nothing can go through its gates, and our dwelling will be with God forever. I don't know if Nehemiah fully knew what his work was helping to do, what it was, what it was leading towards. And often we never do. We might not know how God is going to take our hard work and our efforts and our faith and how he's going to change the world or what he's working towards through it. But the question you need to ask is, what does God put on your heart? What excites you? Who are you burdened for? Who do you feel the need to speak for and defend? What place or people or nation has just captured your heart? What dream is God pressing upon you, saying you need to do something about this. If God has done that, if it agrees with God's word, if he keeps pressing that upon you, pick up your tools, use your gifts, gather the resources God has given you, and go. You don't have to be formally trained. You don't have to hold some official title or position. You do not need to be trained to love God and to grow the kingdom of God. Every one of us here can love God, love people, and serve the world. This call, that, that call that God puts on your heart, it might take you downtown. It might take you to your next door neighbors. It might take you to a different province. It might take you halfway around the world. But don't underestimate the call that God can put on your life or what he can do through you. He's the same God who separated the Red Sea through Moses. He's the same God who took down a giant with my shepherd boy, who just had to sling the stone. He's the same God who allowed Elisha to stand against 450 prophets of Baal single-handedly and come out victorious. He's the same God who allowed Nehemiah and the Jewish people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days while under threat of attack. He's the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the grave. That same God is your God. And when we pick up our tools and we follow God, trusting that He will provide, the world can be changed. Lives can be impacted. And God is glorified. Let's pray. Father God, Father, that is true. 
But God, you are a God who delights in taking what is, is weak, what is broken, what is messed up, and working through it. God doing amazing things to change the world and impact lives, but also to bring you glory. And Father, we just pray that you would reveal your will to us, what it is you would have us do personally. God, if you were calling us to something, Father, make us bold, make us courageous, make us like Nehemiah, who said, I will do it. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your Son, who gives us hope. We pray this in Jesus' name.